You are listening to the Grace Church Podcast. To learn more about grace, including our gathering times, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Tommy Jones. We started a series on Revelation a few weeks back. Revelation, not Revelations. And uh, we're still running through it. And it's like I thought about last week we, did, we started with the letters from the churches. And it's really kind of cool what, uh, what, what John is doing as he writes this book. So John in chapter 1 starts off in the throne room, right? Like he's having this vision and he's in the spirit and all these cool things and they're kind of hard to decipher. Then it's like he comes back to earth in chapter 2. And he's dealing directly with the churches. And most of this stuff we can get. We might not like it, but we can understand it. Same thing in chapter 3, which is where we are today. He's dealing with the churches. He's using, you know, normal language for the most part. And then in chapter 4, next week, he's going back to the throne room. He's like, back in the vision. And so it's really a fun little ride that we're on, and I hope you're enjoying I hope you guys are bringing your Bibles. I'm going to keep encouraging you to do it uh, because I think it's important that you underline and and make notes. And, like, there's a lot that we're dealing with here. Uh, But this week and last week can kind of be a little, I was talking to my friends over there this morning, it can kind of be a little chippy. It can feel kind of kind of difficult uh, when, when these letters to the churches, because not everything John says is something we like. Not everything John says is something we want to hear, especially if you're willing to do the hard work of internalizing this. Uh, if you're willing to do the hard work, we said last week, the question, when, when most of us go looking for a church, we go looking for the church we want, right? We go try to find the place that has everything we want. But our call is not to look for the church we want. Our call is to build the church that God wants, and so if, if you really begin to ask yourselves these questions, am I doing what I'm supposed to do to build the church that God wants? Then this stuff can be a little challenging. But we said at the beginning that, that sometimes God's word is a little difficult. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You guys ever been reading the Word of God when you feel like you were being judged a little bit? You were. We can't say, don't judge me to God. We don't get to do that. Like, sometimes God is judging our thoughts, and, and, and by judging it, what he's doing, he's making us aware of our thoughts and attitudes. He's making us aware of what's going on in our heart. He's making us aware of something that he wants to correct or fix. And so sometimes the Word of God can be a little difficult. But here, here's my thing that I want you to hear. If the word of God is never difficult for you, then you should be worried. If it's difficult for you, that's a sign of something. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Who does God discipline? Those he loves. And he, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? We've all seen some. They're not pleasant, right? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not a true son or daughter. So what this is saying, and some of you guys grew up with terrible fathers who didn't understand what, what, what righteous discipline was. And for you, I'm sorry, this is, verse is really hard, but God is the good father. And so when, when, you, when, when you feel like you're being judged or corrected, it's because he loves you. He's disciplining you in a way that's going to lead you to a better life, not a way that hurts you, not a way that destroys you. Uh, in a way, the good father disciplines, which actually brings life out of you so that your life looks more like Christ. And so if today you feel a little correction, consider yourself loved, right? If you feel a little conviction, consider yourself truly one who belongs to God. If you feel nothing ever, 
then you should probably question um, what's really going on in your heart. All right, the church at Sardis. We've we got three churches to deal with this week. We dealt with four last week. Uh, the church at Sardis. Okay, so Sardis is another big city. It's a massive military power. Uh, there, there's lots going on. These people have so much. It's a, they have a massive temple to the goddess Artemis, which you guys may remember is the fertility goddess. Um, but Sardis actually is known for a couple of strange things. Number one is their luxury and wealth. They have, they have tons of money and wealth. But the second thing they're known for is laziness. Like that's what the city, as a matter of fact, the, the historians say that Sardis was attacked multiple times by invaders and they would lose, not because they didn't have enough army, but because nobody was paying attention because they were lazy because the guards would be asleep. And so into this church, Jesus speaks these words, Revelation 3, Revelation 3, 1. To the angel, to the pastor of the church in Sardis, right, of God and the seven stars, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This is not a letter your church wants to get from God. You have a reputation, right? You got a big room and it's full of people and you're doing all the things. You got the music and you got the message, you got the programs. But let me tell you, I see beyond that and you're dead. And what we see in Sardis is a perfect example of nominal Christianity, a perfect example of a bunch of people gathered together who lack power and purpose, what we see in Sardis is what can happen and has happened over and over in the American church is where people just gather together and they're all, you know, singing. They're all, but they're in love with the experience, not God. And so he warns you, man, be careful. And so how does Jesus bring a group of people like this back to life? We said, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. Okay, we said this in week one. Does anyone remember what the seven spirits are? Is. It's. The Holy Spirit, the seven spirits are the perfect spirit of the Holy Spirit. So how does God, how does Jesus bring a church back to life? The Holy Spirit. And what can happen is if you have a big church full of people, but people don't have the Holy Spirit, you simply have a big church full of people. You don't have any real power or authority in the world. It's the Holy Spirit that makes church special. It's the Holy Spirit that makes church Christ-like. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to look like we are a people who are alive and in love with God. If you don't have the Spirit, you might as well just be watching something else or, you know, watching our football team. Talk about a big group of people full of no power. <laughs> I mean, it's the Holy Spirit of the living God that brings life to church. And so if you are here and you have not given your life to Christ, because the way you get the Holy Spirit isn't, you know, you outserve somebody or you, the way you get the Holy Spirit is you give your life to Christ. And so if you are here and you have not given your life to Christ and you wonder why you're not getting anything out of church, it's because you do not yet have the Spirit. And that's not to judge anybody. I'm just telling you what the book says. And I love what he says in the next verse. He says, wake up. This is verse two. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I love this. I love that so much. He, he finds a dead church. And instead of just going, oh, gosh, this church is dead. You can just push it back in the river. I mean, he, he's, like, he's like, wake up. Wake up. He cares about the dead church. He cares about the people who are sitting in church and inside they're spiritually dead. And instead of just walking away, instead of abandoning you, he says, wake up. And then did you hear the word he used? You're unfinished. How much grace is that? 
You know how many times I've, I've hoped that God was looking on my life and I was doing something incredibly stupid? And he goes, oh, Tommy, you're not finished yet. Instead of saying you're worthless or a waste of time or stupid or whatever, he just goes, oh, you're unfinished. You, have, you are not yet who I designed you to be. But unfinished means I have a plan to finish you, right? There's so much grace in that. Even in the church that is dead, he says, you're unfinished, and I still have a plan for you. One of the sad lessons I've learned as, as a pastor, or I don't know if it's sad or not, I think I, when I first started doing this about 12 years ago, I, I used to think that you had to go out of church to find unsaved people. But what I've realized over my last 12 years is that one of the greatest uh, opportunities to meet and, and speak to unsaved people happens in this room every week. There's a lot of people in this room who aren't saved. And there's a lot of people in this room who, who don't know Jesus. And, um, and it's hard. But I, I, I can tell you this. I can tell you this, guys. Um, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, don't be scared and don't run. Because he wants to know you. And you may think you're here because of some silly reason, because your wife made you, or because your kids make you feel guilty, or because you thought there was going to be donuts or whatever. Um, but you're here because he wants you here. But if, if you're here and you've been here all, for a long time and you don't have any joy inside of you and you don't have any peace inside of you and you don't have any focus inside of you and you don't love people and you don't love people, if you've been coming to church over and over and over and you still don't love people because they don't vote the way you vote or because they don't look the way you look or because they don't talk, to, if you don't love people, then there is still something wrong with you spiritually. And I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation, but maybe you should question whether or not you really know Jesus. Because if you're coming to church week after week after week and God is not doing something inside of you that makes you hate the sin in your life, then something isn't quite connecting yet. Um, I get in trouble sometimes because I don't do a lot of altar calls. People are always like, why don't you do more altar calls? And, and, and maybe I should. Maybe that's true. Because uh, maybe I should do an altar, altar call every week. But like, I don't want to sit up here and be like, you know, hey, come to the altar and then do it again. If, let's play another song until finally saved people are coming to the altar just to make church in, you know. What I think the greatest altar call in the world is when Christians go out in the world and live like Christians. I think the greatest altar call in the world is when people who are saved live a life that's so full of Jesus that no one can deny the truth of who you belong to. You want an altar call? There's an altar call. Leave this place today and live like you know the king. And if you don't know him yet, here's the altar call. Come to him. It'll be the greatest choice you ever make in your life. It will not make your life exponentially easier at first. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. The things that used to be fun for you just get more difficult but it's worth it. All right, let me see what else I have to say about it. Oh, oh, this is good too. Let, let's hit this in Sardis real quick. Uh, it, it says in verse, verse four, it says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. You will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Okay, when, when you see soldier clothes in Revelation, what he's talking about is the dirt, uh, the filth. You weren't allowed in the temple if you had animal feces on your clothes. You weren't allowed in the temple with dirty clothes. It was like a, and so what he's saying is there are some people who still have access to God. Some, and when he uses the word white in Revelation, this is important. When you read the book of Revelation, you see the word white. He is talking about power. 
He's talking about royalty. He's talking about um, life. He's talking about heaven. When you see the word white, know that he is talking about someone who is special and set apart. Okay? All right. Um, Let's roll to Philadelphia now. Philadelphia. This was the youngest of the seven cities. Uh, Anyone know what the word Philadelphia means? Brotherly love. That's what it means, brotherly love. Um, Philadelphia, the church was smaller than the other churches. They had less money than any of the other churches. Um, They weren't being, a lot of these other churches were being attacked and sort of oppressed by pagans. The church in Philadelphia was being attacked and oppressed by Jewish people. Because remember, this, this whole Christian thing started out as a Jewish thing, right? It was Jesus who was a Jew uh, not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Brad Pitt lookalike. He was a Jewish man, and he was surrounded by other guys who were also, anyone want to guess? Jews. And so, yeah, so this thing starts out Jewish. And so some of the Jews back then didn't like the Christians. And so the church in Philadelphia is being oppressed by Jews. In Revelation 3, 7, this is what we see. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. You know what the key of David means? He was from the lineage of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet, acknowledging that I have loved you. Okay. This is the letter you want to get from God. If you ever check your mailbox and there's a big thing on it, you know, and it says, Josh, and then you open it. That's what it said to Josh. Yours would say whatever yours say. And you open it and it says, I've got a letter for you. This is the letter you want from God. And so I was super excited about this because I get to just say all sorts of positive things. Uh, He goes and says, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I have known that you have little, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I'm, I'm telling y'all guys, when I got to this letter, I was like, there's, he doesn't say anything bad to this church. So all I can say to you guys are positive things, right? That was my hope and desire. So I started writing positive things, and then I got super convicted. Because what I realized, the church at Philadelphia was, this is the story of the widow's might. The church that had very little, but it did a lot. This was the story of, of his strength being made great in our weakness, you know what the number one excuse for people in church is about why they can't give, can't serve, or can't participate? Because they have a lack of resources. How, how many times, if you're honest, have you not done something that God called you to do because you believed you had a lack of resources to do it? God told you to give. You, oh, I can't give. I don't have enough. God tells you to serve. I can't serve because I don't have that skill. God tells you uh, to join a small group. I can't join a small group because I don't have enough time. We make so many excuses about our lack of resources, but the truth of the word of God is it's not your massive amount of resources that makes you special. It's trusting God with whatever resources you have. And if you have a lack of resources, God will multiply it and magnify it. That's, that's the story of the kingdom. If you do something, if, let's say you, you've, you know, let's say you got a billion eggs and you give away two. Well, that's expected. But what if you only have two eggs and you give them both away? It's when you serve God from your areas of weakness and want that I believe God gets the most glory. If, if I walk across the room and say, how does somebody, it's not that big of a deal, I'm not scared to. But some of you, if, if today's challenge was to walk across the room and say hi, it would scare the poop out of you, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's when God gets his glory. Some of you guys, you, you, get, you get barely enough to pay your electric bill. 
and to give, and I've seen this happen, to give. And I'm not, I'm, don't think I'm going to say, if you barely have enough to pay your electric bill and you give here, you're going to go home and all your bills are going to be paid. I don't even believe that. What I believe is you will no longer see money the same way. For, the, for those of you who thought you could never go on a mission trip, right? And now I know people who never even left the country and they're in Dominican and they're overwhelmed, but they came home changed. And if you want to hear about what you can do with a lack of resources, leave this country and go see what people do with the lack of resources. They're happier than we are. They don't have anything. The problem with you is in me is not our lack of resources. It's a lack of faith in what God can do with the resources we have. And if we would begin to trust him just where we are with whatever we have, I believe we might get this same letter. Our lack of resources is not what's stopping us from impacting the world. It's our lack of faith. If y'all don't like it, read the book yourself because that's what I think it's saying. One last thing on this one that I think is interesting, and some of you are going to disagree with me on this, and I'm okay. Uh, it's it's uh, verse 10, and it says, Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from an hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Okay, let me just talk about this real quick. I'm not going to get too far into this, but... I don't personally believe, based on my understanding of the Bible, that Christians will be kept from some great hour of trial. I think what he's saying there and what he means is, I will be with you during that great hour of trial. And one of the reasons I believe that is because this very church from Philadelphia, this letter was to these people. They read it, and years later, 11 Christians from Philadelphia were martyred with Polycarp. Over and over and over, the story of the Bible is not, I will pluck you out before a great hour of trial or tribulation. Tribulation in, in Revelation means pain, suffering, uh, great, great suffering. I don't think the story of the Bible is I'm going to pluck people out before that. I think the story of the Bible is I'm going to help you endure during that. That whatever happens in your life, whatever you come, whatever goes on in your life, you may not be spared pain in this world, but as those who know Christ, we will approach pain differently. We will approach pain as those who have Christ. Therefore, in great hours of suffering, what you should see in the church are people who look different. Now, how's that gone for us? I remember a little thing called Corona, and it was a great hour of suffering. And church people acted just like unchurch. You could not, from social media, you couldn't tell the difference between who was in church and who wasn't. Because we were all just acting crazy, right? Everyone just completely lost their cool. It was like me on, on Twitter last night. Twitter's the only social media I will use anymore because none of y'all see it. So I feel like I kind of have some anonymity. And so I would post something and delete it, post something and delete it, post something and delete it. I was like, God, oh, just put it down. We should look different during times of suffering. That's the story of Christianity, that we endure when everyone else fails. All right, final church, Laodicea. Maybe you guys have heard of this one. This is probably one of the most famous churches in Revelation. It's a very wealthy city, wealthy church. Uh, this, this city was known for its medical marvels. Like this was a rich, wealthy city. They had invented this eye balm, which did all these amazing things for people. Um, let's see, what else? There was a special local wool that was highly prized. Uh, there was one major issue with this city. Okay, this was a great city. They had a bad water supply. They would get their water from, from uh, Colossia, which was upstream. And by the time, because they didn't build things well, because they didn't build the wells correctly, by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was often lukewarm. Okay, so this is going to make sense to you in a second. As a matter of fact, the water was so lukewarm 
that it was dirty, undrinkable, and when you drank it, it would make you want to, anyone want to guess? Spit it out of your mouth. With that said, let's hear about the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You think the people there connected with that? Wouldn't you rather have cold or hot water? I mean, I either want my water cold or I want it hot. I don't want it lukewarm and undrinkable. He says, but because you're neither hot nor cold, I spit you out. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, buy your gold from me, from the refined fire, so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your own eyes so that you can see. Gosh, this is not the letter you want. Everything that was important to them, their wealth, their medical miracle, their stanky water, every single thing he just went after, didn't he? The summary of this church is it was a church full of immature, overfed, and self-satisfied people. A church full of people who had so much they didn't realize they needed God. A church full of people so wealthy that they didn't realize that their wealth had become their undoing. This is the one where I think we better be careful. This is the one, because I I think in America it is so easy because we have so much. We have so much. And if you're in this room right now thinking, man, I'm not rich, let me tell you this. If you have running water in your home, you are in the top 90th percentile. The top, you were in the top percentile of people in the whole world in your wealth if you have running water in your home. So I know you might not feel rich, but to the rest of the world, those of us who are sitting in this room right now are the wealthiest people alive. And that is why it is so hard for us to completely surrender our lives to Jesus because we have too much. The truth is I'll go home today and I'll have electricity with or without Jesus. I'll go home today and and I'll I'll probably have water in my house with, with or without Jesus. There's so many things that we don't think we need Jesus for that we get to the point where we don't really think we need Jesus. As, as I was writing this part of the message, my wife was texting me pictures from Dominican. And I'm looking at these little kids and, the, and these people, and they have nothing. And my first thought was, oh, I'm sad for them. They have so little. And about 30 seconds later, God said, no, my, I'm sad for you because you have too much. They don't have too little. We've got so much that we can't even see the truth. And great wealth without great perspective is one of the most dangerous things anyone can possibly have. Listen, I'm not saying you should be ashamed of your wealth. As long as everything you have is devoted to the glory of God, then be happy with it. But if your gifts and your talents and your skills and your money are devoted to the glory of you, then be ashamed and repent. Because we have officially lost our way. And truth is, we'd be better off with nothing. And I believe that, guys. I believe it with all my heart. There are times I look at people in the rest of the world. There are times when I read about the Christians in China, and they're meeting in little concrete buildings. And if they get caught, they get arrested and died. And you know what I think about them? God, I'm jealous. What an experience that must be, where everything in your life is surrendered to God, where you actually need Jesus fully for every moment. What an experience that must be. And as I was reading this, I was just feeling, I mean, I was feeling so bad 
Because there's been so many times I, I didn't want to give God my best because I wanted to hold it. And there have been so many times when I became probably more committed to material comfort than I was to Jesus. And if you're honest, you've been right there with me. And so I'm just feeling so bad and like condemnation starts to sink in, you know, guilt and shame. And then I read the rest of this passage and this was the one. I've got a pen pal. Her name is Brenda. She, she would, I would never say her last name. But she'd be so embarrassed. She's a, a lady who goes to this church and she and I just write messages back and forth to each other all the time. She's considerably older than me, which makes her considerably wiser than me. And she, oh, she's wonderful. But I wrote her about this. This was the part of Revelation where I lost it. Revelation 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So repent. Be honest. Be earnest. Be honest and repent. Listen to what he says. Remember, he just said, I want to spit you out of my mouth. And now listen to what he says. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear me, open the door and I will come in and eat with you. And you will eat with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even if you have failed in this area, do you know what the king of the world is doing? Standing at your door and knocking. Just let me in. Let me show you. Let me, let me show you what I can do with your pain. I know, you, I know, let me show you what I can do with your suffering. Let me show you what I can do. I know you don't have a lot, but let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what I can do with your time. Let me show you what I can do with your resources. Let me show you what I can do with every single thing in your life. You will simply open up to me. Then I will open up to you and I will give you more of me. And what you truly need is not more money and not more time and not more skill. What you need is more Jesus the Christ. And if you're willing to let me in, if you're willing to let me in, then everything you have will become an instrument to serve me. Everything, and I will give purpose to everything you have. Guys, if, if your highest calling is, is making money, then you will never make enough. If your highest calling is your own talent, you'll never have enough talent. If your highest calling is making friends, you'll never have enough likes on the Facebook. If your highest calling is anything but Christ, you will never, ever be satisfied. But if he becomes the focus of everything, then everything will have new purpose and meaning. I believe this, guys. I've seen it. And those of you who just got back from Dominican, you probably saw it. You saw it with people who had nothing, and yet everything they had belonged to God. And so I, I just want to end this, um, this upbeat message with, with seven questions that I think we should all ask ourselves. Why did I pick seven? Anyone want to guess? We're doing a study on Revelation, so it made sense. Uh, and I know y'all won't be able to get all these right now, so uh, we'll put them out on the Facebook and whatever other evil social media we use to try to make sure you're paying attention. And then we'll email them and do whatever to get them out there. But I, I just want y'all to listen to these and sort of internalize seven questions I think we should all be asking ourselves over the next few weeks if we truly desire to build the church God wants. And here's the first question. Is my love for Jesus on display all through the week and on Sunday? Is my love for Jesus on display all through the week and on Sunday? Would someone encounter you at Sonic or Kroger or in traffic and say, there is something unusual about the way that person loves? Second question, am I willing to suffer for Christ? You know what, let's change that one. Am I willing to be inconvenienced at all? for Christ. Third question, am I growing 
in my knowledge of the faith? Am I pursuing growth? And I believe pursuing growth is about more than sitting here listening to how I have grown. I believe pursuing growth is you grow on your own, and then we come together and we're all pursuing it together. Am I pursuing growth in my knowledge? Am I pursuing a life of holiness? Am I pursuing a life? Of, is that means I am no longer satisfied with the sin in my life. Am I pursuing a life of holiness so that I refuse to let sin take hold in my life? Is the Holy Spirit active in my life? Would anyone know it? Am I committed to following Jesus into a life of other-centered living? You know what that means? Am I committed to elevating others' needs over my own? And number seven is this. Is my allegiance to Jesus Christ undivided? Am I more committed to Christ than I am the comforts of this world? He's knocking on your door right now, right now, right now. He's knocking at your door. He doesn't want to condemn you. He doesn't want to chase you off. He doesn't want you to stop coming to church because you're bothered today. He wants to breathe the spirit into you. Seven questions. Think about it. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. And again, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Podcast.